Welcome to Passy Mears CAM Podcast, Conversations on Aerodigestive Management. This episode of CAM features your host, Dr. Kristen King, and guest, Rachel O'Hare, having a conversation on the basics of high flow. Once again, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the Passy Mirror Conversations on Area Digestive Management podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kristen King, and I'm here today with Rachel O'Hare, a registered respiratory therapist who's joined us full-time, and we're going to spend a little time getting to know Rachel and also talking about high flow and answering hopefully some of the questions you have about what high flow is and what patients need it and when it's used and those types of things. But first, let's get to know Rachel a little bit. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about me. I am, as you said, a registered respiratory therapist. I originally got my start in the United States Army, um, so military trained. I got out of respiratory school very young, and that's where I got my start. And then I started traveling pretty soon after that. So I became a traveling respiratory therapist, and I could, did travel for a good majority of my career. And I've been everywhere. I've been from Alaska to Hawaii, Vermont, California, Montana, a few other places in between. Um, and I've been very blessed to have a lot of experience in many different care areas. I've worked in the NICU as well as the PICU um, adults. Um, I've done some pulmonary function studies um, as well as um, extended care side. So I've done a lot as far as bedside care. A few years ago, I did decide to step away from the bedside. Um, I found that my passion was in education and I really wanted to make a difference out there. So I started um, as a clinical educator with um, Novacite, and I worked with them for a little over a year where I did um, education with the Puritan Bennett 980 ventilator um, and Nelcor pulse oximetry and capnography. And then from there, I moved into a clinical manager position with Vapotherm, where I worked um, as a clinical manager covering all of Northern California for a couple of years. And then this year, joined the Passimir team. So I'm very excited to be part of this team. Um, and, you know, I'm still learning and getting to know everybody and everything. And it's been a really great experience so far. So thank you again for having me today. Oh, thank you for joining us on both ends, both helping us out as a clinical specialist and joining us on the podcast. You definitely bring a lot of experience to the table. Uh, do you have an area that like was your first love over the other areas? Did you prefer, you know, acute care or working more with the PFTs or did you have any, anything stand out to you? Um, so initially I I would say I'm an adrenaline junkie. So I always like things that get your heart bumping a little bit. So it was initially it was the um, emergency department because you kind of never knew what you were going to get and always had the traumas and things like that. That was my first love. Um, from there, it moved to the NICU because again, you have a lot of heart stopping moments where things can go really well or they can go really bad really quickly. So it keeps you on your toes. Um, but most recently, I feel like my heart lies in the pediatric world um, just because, you know, kids are so innocent and to see them struggle and things like that, it's always nice to work with them and work with their families and see them overcome these obstacles and, you know, make it through. So it's, I would say peds for now is where my heart is, but, you know, education is another area that I feel like I've definitely grown into and I really enjoy as well. So um, I'm always adapting and <laughs> changing to wherever I'm at and whatever situation I'm in. So. 
Well, good. Well, I appreciate all your experiences because that's going to help you, I think, answer some of the questions I have for you today. Okay. I hope so. So my first, we'll start out a little, a little bit easy. Can you just define high flow? So we get everybody on the same page. When you hear someone say, I'm using high flow or tell me about high flow. What is, what is high flow? So high flow um, is basically when you're having to go above the 15 liter mark of oxygen delivery. So when we are talking about high flow devices, we're usually talking about a high flow nasal cannula, um, which also can be used to deliver um, heated humidification for tracheostomy tubes. But high flow itself is basically a device where we're blending air and oxygen so we can get a, a specific percentage of oxygen delivery to our patients at higher levels of flow than what are that we can use with a standard flow meter coming from the wall. So usually when we're talking above 15 liters, 15, 20 liters, depending on um, where you're at for our patients. So traditional oxygen starts with using um, our low flow devices, such as a nasal cannula, um, and then moving to like a simple oxygen mask or an oxymizer. Um, and then, you know, then we have our non-rebreathers and things like that. And once we're above those, that is when we're in the kind of the high flow range of providing um, oxygen or flow to our patients. It doesn't always have to be 100% oxygen. So we have that ability to vary how much oxygen we're giving with these devices versus just the 100% that we are giving straight from the wall. So why would that be important? Like being able to vary the oxygen level more? So when you think about delivering oxygen for any patient out there, less is best. That is the rule across the board is that we want to use the least amount of oxygen to meet the needs of our patients. Um, and so when we're using a standard device out there, we are delivering oxygen um, from the wall, and that is 100% oxygen, okay? So even though we have, you know, when we're talking about a nasal cannula, for example, we'll say, oh, they're on two liters, so they're getting 28%. Um, it confuses people because, yes, they are technically um, getting the 28%, but what's actually running through that tube is hundred percent oxygen. And we have to be aware of that. Um, what's causing it to dilute is entrainment of room air from our patients breathing from around that flow. So it dilutes that hundred percent oxygen. Well, when we get up into the higher flow ranges for our patients, um, less dilution occurs, um, so they're getting a higher percentage percentage of oxygens and in certain disease states such as COPD and things like that, we don't necessarily want to provide high levels of oxygen, but we may want to help their work of breathing and that's where the flow comes in. So the flow is used to help with patients who are having some difficulty, um, you know, breathing and things like that and not necessarily provide the higher levels of oxygen unless it's necessary. You mentioned COPD and you may not want to provide as much oxygen. Can you talk a little bit about why a COPD patient may not need or, or may not get as much oxygen as another patient? Well, with COPD, there is an impairment to gas exchange that occurs um, over time of, you know, how, depending on how chronic and severe the illness is, um, so their bodies are used to being deprived of having, you know, oxygen 
like you and I do. And so their bodies become adept to that. And if you start providing high levels of oxygen, you can knock out what we call the hypoxic drive to breathe. So your patients will become obtunded and um, not, not breathe as often as they should. Um, so providing high levels of oxygen in that, in that pace can be very detrimental because then we might stop our patients from breathing altogether. So um, that's just one incidence. And, you know, we also think of on the other side of the spectrum, we have like our infants and our neonates and things like that. Um, oxygen can be very detrimental to their um, development as well. Um, you know, retinopathy of prematurity, ROP, um, can impact their eyesight if we provide too, too much oxygen. So having the ability to control the amount that we're delivering to our patients is very beneficial. I kind of laugh when I talk with someone who's outside the field of speech pathology, which is where I work, because you're saying some phrases and terms I want to make sure we clarify. Okay. You said the hypoxic drive to breathe. Yes. Do you mind explaining that a little bit for the listeners, just in case? Basically, your central nervous system controls the drive to breathe, and it's a balancing act of how much oxygen and how much CO2 levels are in the body. Um, when there's you know, high CO2 levels, um, we send a signal for our patients to breathe faster to eliminate that CO2. Um, when there's low oxygen levels, again, we send the signal faster so that our patients will breathe faster to accommodate lack of oxygen. Um, so when we're talking about the hypox hypoxic drive for our patients, when that system becomes um, adept to operating in less than optimal circumstances, you know, they're always constantly having lower oxygen levels, it adapts to it. Essentially, it's used to not having low oxygen levels so that when it receives high levels of oxygen, it doesn't know what to do. So it sends signals to slow down the respiratory rate. And basically, that's what we're talking about is knocking out that hypoxic drive that we naturally have for our patients to breathe. Oh, thank you. That, that really helped even for me. So now you mentioned COPD and you've mentioned neonates, which can be a wide age range also as yeah. far as using high flow. So is high flow something that can be used with all ages? What patient populations tend to need it or have it more frequently? So yes, actually high flow was originally invented by Vapotherm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that company, but they created Vapotherm and originally it was used specifically for our NICU patients. So it got its start in the neonatal uh, world. So that is one care area that it can be used, but since then it's expanded to all care areas. Um, basically any patient who's having difficulty um, with either oxygenation, um, you know, having problems, you know, with um, work of breathing and things like that, you can use it for basically any patient out there. And I feel like COVID has definitely taken that to a whole new level. It used to be, you know, as a traveler, I would encounter places that didn't have any high flow options at all for their patients. We didn't have high flow oxygen. We would just um, usually use what we consider non-invasive ventilation or BiPAP instead of having a high flow or something available that's in intermediate um, of the two. Um, since COVID, pretty much everywhere has gone to using high flow because we found that with our severe hypoxemic patients, we are able to provide a large volume of oxygen to these patients to help treat that. Um, whereas, you know, our lower flow devices just could not meet the demands for our patients. So um, it's come a long way as far as treating patients 
um, for respiratory distress as well as hypoxemia. So you've mentioned with the high flow, the fact, and it's called high flow, but you've mentioned the flow, the volume and the oxygen levels. Do you mind explaining a little of the, what's the difference between those three things? So flow, you know, it's, it's one of those things, even respiratory therapists, I feel like have, have trouble grasping what flow actually is. The flow is actually a volume of air moving through a circuit. Um, and you've got to think of it as just that volume. Um, so when we're talking about our patients and we're talking about high flow, we're talking about the volume of gas that we're delivering to our patients over one minute. So there are, you know, two essential settings when you're setting your high flow device. There is the volume of air that you're delivering for your patients. And then there's how much oxygen you're delivering within that volume of air. So, um, the volume and the flow, which is the flow itself, is typically used for our patients' um, respiratory distress. So if our patients are, you know, working really hard to breathe or they're having, you know, difficulty, they're tachypnic, um, this is where we would want to provide larger volumes of air. So that's where that high flow comes from. Um, and then we have on the other end, because we ha can control how much oxygen we're delivering with that high flow. So um, our patients, just because they're requiring high levels of high volumes of gas, doesn't necessarily mean that they need high levels of oxygen. So sometimes, and we talked about this a little bit with our like COPD patients, sometimes we have patients that just need a high volume of gas to be delivered without a lot of oxygen. And so we have the flexibility to do that. Sometimes with COVID, for example, um, our patients are so severely hypoxemic that they need that high volume at a high percentage of oxygen to treat their hypoxemia. Um, and so that's where it's a very versatile tool, but they are two, two parameters that we set independently, but they do work hand in hand as well. And it's, it gets confusing, um, even for a respiratory therapist out there. Um, because if you are on um, a high level of oxygen and a lower flow rate, you may be able to decrease the level of oxygen you're on just by increasing how much flow you're delivering. Because sometimes it's just a matter of adding that additional volume to our patients to meet their demands um, so we can wean that oxygen down. So um, good rule of thumb out there just, you know, for your guys' FYI is if you are thinking you know, flow versus oxygen, always make sure that your patients can maintain their SAT levels on like a 60% level um, of FiO2 prior to adjusting your flow. You'll, you always start with having a high volume of oxygen or high volume of gas being delivered to your patients, and then make sure your patients can maintain their oxygen saturations on that high volume prior to turning down the flow. Okay. Um, so it's, oxygenation first. So always wean your FiO2 prior to weaning your flow. And then once they're stable with a lower level of oxygen, then you can back that flow down. Oh, so. that's good to know. So I've heard about high flow being used from a, when looking at the patient population with tracheostomies, Yes, I've heard about it being used and it may even be patients who are just intubated. It may not be a tracheostomy when I asked this first question, but I've heard about high flow being used 
as a means of trying to keep them off the ventilator. Talk about it as kind of an in-between step or, or how that might work. There's not just tracheostomy, but that is also um, for non-invasive ventilation, like a non-intubated patient as well. Um, so traditional continuum of care, we start with oxygen and then we move to a non-invasive ventilation, which is usually our BiPAP or our CPAP. And then we would move to mechanical ventilation. Problem with BiPAP and CPAP is you're having to put this mask on our patient's face and strapping it down really, really tight and forcing air in. Um, so a lot of our patients don't tolerate that quite as well. Um, so with the invention and high flow available, we can now have an in-between step that we can take those patients who are having difficulty wearing that mask and we can put them on a high flow device and still treat their symptoms of distress and their oxygenation needs and ideally prevent putting them on the ventilator altogether. Um, so it's a nice tool for that, but it can also be used on the other side, as you talked about, once we have our patients who've been on a ventilator, um, if we want to extubate them and they're still requiring, you know, higher levels of oxygen and things like that. Now we have a device that we can extubate them to and put them on um, and keep them oxygenated rather well with that. Or um, if we have a tracheostomized patient, this is a nice tool as well, um, because when we're providing those high volumes of gas, we have to provide humidification. Um, so we're using this as a warm humidified system for our patients. So it's really great for our tracheostomy patients. Um, most of the time when we're thinking for our trach patients, it's just as like a humidification device, but um, I would not say that some, you know, facilities aren't the, out there um, aren't using it to help facilitate keeping patients off the vent as well. Cause it is a nice in between because you can provide those high flows um, and high volumes of gas for your patients who may be in some distress and hopefully keep them off the vent as well. Considering that I'm a speech pathologist and yes. I don't work in the field of respiration and as far as direct patient care, is there any tidbit as a respiratory therapist, is there any little nugget of information that you would say a speech language pathologist needs to know about high flow that we haven't covered? We may have covered the main points, but just I just want to make sure we haven't missed anything. That's a great question. I would say just because your patient is on a high flow device doesn't necessarily mean that they are in respiratory distress. So keep that in mind. It's still an assessment process if you're going in to see your patient, especially if you're looking for valve placement. Um, you definitely want to assess your patient. And, you know, you're looking at, you know, both parameters. If they're on, you know, high levels of oxygen, but they're on low flows of, of, you know, gas being delivered, they're not necessarily in a critical state. In fact, um, the lower that flow is, the higher your oxygen may need to be sometimes for your patients. And that's because of, again, that entrainment that happens. So once we drop below around the 20 liter mark is what I kind of remind people as, um, you have to start thinking what I call wall. Okay. And this is when we're delivering oxygen straight from the wall using a standard device, like a, you know, a mask for our patients, that is a hundred percent oxygen coming through, but our patient is not receiving a hundred percent oxygen because as they breathe, they're in training room air, which dilutes that oxygen being delivered to our patients. That same thing applies to our patients when they are on lower flows of gas. 
Um, so if you have a patient who's say on like 20 liters and 60% and you're wondering why they're desatting, it's because they're only receiving 60%. They're in training oxygen, which is diluting that. And so they're getting lower levels of oxygen than the, the patient who would be who's on the wall. So that's where you would consider increasing that flow maybe a little bit so your patients can get, you know, a little bit more so they're not having to entrain some of that room air and things like that. So paying attention to both just because they're on high levels of oxygen doesn't mean that they're necessarily sick. Um, and just because they're on higher levels of flow um, doesn't mean that they're necessarily really sick. They're more of a, um, they're more it's more complicated than that, I would say. So definitely talk to your respiratory therapist and ask them to kind of give you the, the full picture of what's going on with that patient. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you for that explanation and adding that nugget. So now what I want to ask you about are high flow, because you've talked about volume and you've talked about the oxygen. So is it the same as providing pressure to the patient? Because you have a ventilator, you have pressure support. So yeah. how, how do those relate or not relate? Okay. So, um, no, it's not the same as providing pressure. So when we think of a flow of gas, um, as long as we have an open system, we do not generate pressure. Pressure is only generated when a flow becomes obstructed or there is some kind of resistance to it. And the objective for most high flow devices is not to create pressure, not to seal the airway in any way. Um, so when you're using just straight high flow, there is, um, very minimal pressure associated with that. Um, so especially when we're thinking like our, our peds and our, our babies, they always get it. I always would hear this question, oh, I can't go up on the flow. I'm providing too much pressure. And it's the, it's the people get that confused and flow doesn't equal pressure unless we're sealing the airway. So when you're choosing your device or using your device, as long as you're maintaining an open system. So each device may be a little bit different. Um, but most of them, like a specifically nasal cannula looks for um, how much leak there is around the cannula itself. Um, it's not designed to have a specific um, seal. So making sure that the size of the cannula is appropriate for your patients, um, for your tracheostomy patients, when you're using it for that purpose, again, making sure that they have an exhalation port and that air can escape around that tube um, that ensures that there's no pressure. So again, it's not the same thing. Higher flow does not equal pressure unless we're creating some resistance or obstructing that airflow in any way. So thank just, you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point that Flow and pressure are not the same thing. Yeah. A lot of times, even our respiratory therapists and, you know, doctors and things like that. I, I, I hear, I heard it all the time in the NICU. Oh, we can't do it. And it's like, no, you know, we're not doing pressure here as long as we're maintaining an open system. So that's making sure the sizing and things are appropriate. Okay. Well, you've mentioned, um, you mentioned like the nasal cannula. Do you mind doing a quick review of the different ways high flow can be provided? I know you can do, you know, nasal cannula. What are, what are the other options? Um, so primarily, um, when we're talking heated high flow nasal cannula, there is a cannula, um, different companies make different types of cannulas. There's, you know, there's, you know, flexible, inflexible, all those things. So paying attention to that. Um, and then there is using it via a, a trach mask. Um, is another way. So, or trach collar, that's what I like to call it. Um, that's another way to provide it. Um, there's also, you can do though, I caution this a little bit because you have to make sure that it's an open system. You can do T piece, but you have to ensure an exhalation port 
um, so that they have an escape of air. Otherwise, then you, if not, then we have that occlusion and we're providing pressure. And that's not our goal because we, when we do that, we don't really have a way of measuring how much pressure. So ensuring that there's an exhalation side for our TPs for our patients. But those are the primary ways. Nasal cannula, trach mask or trach collar, and a TPs for our patients. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And I want to, I appreciate your time joining me and talking about high flow. I have a feeling you and I will talk again on the podcast at some point, um, because there's a lot of topics and I want to do some things about pediatrics. We're going to have a pediatric focus a little later in the year. The, I do want to share that you provide currently a lot of education that you're teaching various courses on ventilator application of the Passimir valve, both with both with adults and with pediatrics. Uh, you've got a ventilator application for the non-respiratory therapist that approaches it from a little bit different perspective, but people could check out some of the education that you're providing live. You've got those offered live so that um, people can tune in whenever fits their schedule. And yeah. so those are available basically Monday through Friday at various times, but at the passimir.com slash remote hyphen live hyphen in services, they can pull up a schedule and see when you're teaching those, at least for now. Um, I have a feeling we'll be adding more topics as we go along, but I really appreciate you joining in on the podcast and talking about high flow. That is a big kind of hot topic area in speech pathology and for various reasons, and we'll be covering high flow from different perspectives, but I wanted to get this basic foundational knowledge out to people on, you know, what it even is and understanding some of the differences. And I think you did a really nice job with that. So I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. And do you have any last bit of wisdom that you want to share? Um, you know, I would say, always teamwork. If you come in and you see something that you're unfamiliar with, never hesitate to find your respiratory therapist and have that conversation with them. Um, I know sometimes we can be busy, (laughs) not necessarily approachable, but um, if you can catch us during our rounds, um, it's usually the best time and um, having those conversations so that you're working together with them so that you know what parameters and things that your patient is on. I, that, that would be my advice. And oh, I think that's a great piece of advice. Teamwork is something that we all need to learn and use. For sure. We all bring a different piece to the puzzle. So thank you again, Rachel. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAM. We are happy to offer continuing education credit through ASHA for this podcast. To receive credit, please go to www.passymure.com podcast and click on the continuing education link under this episode. Then you will either create an account or log into your existing education portal account. Complete the quiz and course evaluation for your podcast episode. Your certificate will be available for download once completed.